Speed up with podcast speed up. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org. Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I'm your host, Julia Gelliff, and with me is today's guest, Professor Tom Griffiths. Tom is a professor in the University of California, Berkeley uh, Psychology and Cognitive Science Department, where he runs the Computational Cognitive Science Lab. Tom's research uh, focuses in large part on understanding how the human brain forms judgments and makes decisions, and to what extent we can model those decision-making processes as being as, as following sort of ideal statistical algorithms, the, the sort that we might program into, say, an artificial intelligence. So that's going to be the topic of today's episode. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you. So to start off, maybe you could sort of give us a sense of why this is even a plausible hypothesis. Why would we expect a priori that the human brain might be using statistical algorithms? I think that's a good question. So uh, to me, a lot of it comes down to the fact that despite you know, what we might read about uh, our human failings, human beings are still the best example that we have of a system that can solve a variety of different kinds of problems. Uh, you know, the problems that are the kinds of things that are at the, the cutting edge of, of AI and machine learning research, things like learning languages, learning causal relationships, uh, learning from small amounts of data, being able to do things like science, which requires us to engage with the world and then try and figure out the structure of that environment that we're in. So I think, you know, the, for me, the, the key question is how is that we're capable of, of making those kinds of inferences and then using rational models as a starting point gives us a kind of set of tools for engaging with those questions. Okay. And I, you know, something I realized that I'm confused about as I was preparing for this conversation is I'm, I'm confused about whether the hypothesis here that you're investigating or the claim that you're making is that the brain actually uses um, statistical algorithms, for example, Bayesian inference, which we'll get to, you know, later in the show, or whether the claim is that the brain can be described as if it is using Bayesian inference. Where, like, yeah, just to clarify in case the distinction isn't clear to listeners, uh, you know, you might say that, for example, when, when people decide what music to listen to or what clothes to wear, um, that those decisions can be modeled as signaling decisions in which people are trying to align themselves with one social class through their consumption choices and away from another class. But th- just because the decisions can be modeled that way doesn't mean that that's what's happening inside their mind at the time that they buy, you know, the Kanye album. They may just be thinking, oh, I'm going to enjoy this music. But still, the forces that conspired to shape, you know, what music they expect to enjoy or not can can be influenced by, you know, by signaling forces, essentially. So with the question of whether the brain is using statistical algorithms or just making choices that sort of closely match what statistical algorithms would produce, that's, that seems like an open question to me. Yeah, that's right. And I, and I think that's an important distinction to make when we're thinking about modeling cognition. So uh, in cognitive science, we, we talk about different levels of analysis, uh, which is basically different kinds of questions that we can be asking and different kinds of answers we can be getting about how the mind works. Uh, one of the classic versions of this kind of division of these questions into different levels of analysis is due to David Ma, uh, who is a, uh, a neuroscientist at MIT. And he basically argued that you could distinguish three different levels that we can ask questions about information processing systems in general and minds in particular. So one is what he called the computational level, which is really about the kind of abstract problem that's being solved 
specifying what it is that's the, the problem that the information processing system has to solve and then what the ideal solution to that problem looks like, uh, or as he put it, the logic by which that's carried out. Um, at the next level is what he called the algorithmic level, and that's really about what the algorithms are that implement or approximate those ideal solutions. And in the context of cognitive science, that's a question which is about you know, actually what's going on inside our heads. What, what are the, the cognitive processes and strategies that, that we're engaging in? And then uh, the third level is what he called the implementation level, and that's about brains and neurons for, for people. It's really about how it is that those algorithms are executed in hardware. Um, so most of the work that I've done historically has been at that computational level, where we're saying, let's look at the problems that people face, you know, including those problems that I talked about, problems of you know, how do you learn a part of a language, or how do you figure out causal relationships, how do you, you know, learn from small amounts of data? Those are all problems that we can formulate in certain kind of mathematical terms, and we can say, okay, here's the problem that we want to, we want to talk about. Um, and then we can say, well, what are the solutions to those problems? And those solutions end up being things like Bayesian inference, as you mentioned. Um, and what that does is it says, if this is the problem that's being solved, then here's what the solution to that problem looks like. And that equips us to basically kind of go out with a, a certain set of explanations tools where we can be asking, okay, you know, are there problems that uh, give us solutions that end up looking like aspects of human behavior? And then if there are, then we get some sort of hypotheses out of that about why it is people might be behaving in the ways that they are, but we don't have answers to the question of how it is they're behaving in the way they are, which I think gets at the, the sort of the second part of your distinction, right, about what it is that's actually going on inside our heads. And so the next question after that is to say, yeah, what are, what are the actual algorithms inside our heads? Um, but we get a little bit of constraint on thinking about those algorithms from having perhaps identified some good hypotheses at that abstract level about what the structure of the problems is. So let's delve a little deeper into, uh, maybe let's choose a simple example, or I don't know exactly what counts as simple, but um, so an example that seems to me to be likelier to be simple, like um, like visual perception. Um, how, how do our, how do does the human brain recognize an object as being, you know, a cat instead of a table, that sort of thing? Or maybe language is simpler, I don't know. Um, but if you could just walk us through what, what would sort of a theoretical ideal solution be to that uh, kind of problem? Okay, those are both pretty hard problems. <laughs> okay, all right. I, 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 I realized that my intuitions might be off there as soon as I started that sentence. Why don't you pick a, a problem, uh, like a typical problem the human brain might face, and you could describe, you know, what, an, what a theoretical solution might look like? Okay, I'll just say those, those problems, you know, part of the reason why they're interesting and part of the reason why we study aspects of those problems is that um, they're things for which, in many cases, we don't actually know what the right rational solutions are, right? The reason why they're kind of at the cutting edge of AI and machine learning is that those are things where we haven't necessarily got exactly the right formal tools for engaging with those problems. So we can kind of characterize the structure of those problems very abstract terms where we say, well, you know, what you get is some data, which would be an image or, um, you know, some utterances in a language. And then what you're entertaining are hypotheses about the contents of that image, uh, basically, you know, trying to go from, say, its two-dimensional structure to its three-dimensional structure and understanding what the objects are that appear there, or going from those utterances to a, to a sort of grammar or another kind of understanding of the, the, the nature of the language. Um, but doing that is something which is, at the moment, beyond the capacities of the kinds of you know, um, uh, algorithms that we, we have available to us. So I'm going to focus on a simpler case, or um, 
at least a case where we can boil it down to a, a, a simple possibility, which is, um, say, learning a causal relationship. Um, so in the context of learning a causal relationship, the, the very simplest thing that you could think about is something like trying to infer a single causal relationship. So whether, say, uh, a medicine causes people to recover from a disease. Uh, and in the context of studying that, what we'd say is, well, let's think about what the data are that people might have to work with. So you could imagine that you were a doctor and you treated some people with this medicine. There are some other people who hadn't been treated with the medicine. And so what you get out of that is what a statistician would call contingency data. You know, the frequency with which people recover, whether or not they're treated with the medicine, um, as well as the frequencies for which they don't recover. And then what you have to do is evaluate, you know, uh, whether there's an underlying causal relationship. So if you're somebody living in the 21st century with the benefit of over 100 years of statistics investigating this kind of question, you can pretty quickly say, okay, well, I'll go off and do my chi-square test or whatever it is that's your favorite statistical test. Um, uh, but what's interesting about this problem is that you know, for thousands and thousands of years, human beings have made inferences about causal relationships without having access to statistics. And in fact, the, the history of scientific medicine is one where you know, even as, uh, as, as recently as the 19th century, people would have to figure out whether medicines worked or not, relying only on their intuitions about causal relationships, right? So, you know, if you were a doctor living in the 19th century and you wanted to convince somebody else that they should, you know, use this treatment that you came up with, what you basically end up telling them is the data, and then they have to make their own judgment as to the causal efficacy of that treatment just from those raw data, and then those causal intuitions are what determines whether that becomes standard medical practice. So uh, the way that we approach that problem then at this you know, abstract level, thinking about the computational problem, is to say what we're trying to do is induce whether this relationship exists. And then we can go to uh, statistics or we can go to AI where people have started to think about causality. And in practice, this is uh, in joint work with uh, Josh Tenenbaum, we what we did was go and look at uh, AI where people were starting to use what are called graphical models as the basis for making causal inferences. So basically, what you can do is you can say, here are two different models that could describe the world, one in which a causal relationship exists, one in which one doesn't exist. Each of those models implies a probability distribution over the data that we expect to observe. And then we can you know, use Bayes' rule to evaluate those different hypotheses with respect to those data. Um, so, so that part of the problem, you know, was something where there were existing tools in AI for formulating it. Uh, but what we get from studying human cognition is actually insight into the implicit assumptions that guide people's inferences about causal relationships. So, uh, in work with Josh, and then in subsequent work with one of my colleague, uh, one of my, my former students, Sai Wing Young, we've done a series of experiments where we've established that uh, what people expect about causal relationships is that if you say, you know, A causes B that means that you assume that A occurring is going to increase the probability of B occurring. Um, and that might seem like a trivial, you know, uh, a trivial observation, but it's actually something which is not assumed in you know, almost all sort of statistical notions of you know, what you do when you look for a causal relationship and most of the notions that are used in AI. Uh, another important thing is that if you say A causes B, people assume that A causes B most most of the time, that if A occurs, it's very likely that B will occur. So that it's a it's a near deterministic relationship. And it turns out that to model human judgments accurately, you need to have those two assumptions: that causes increase the probability of their effects, and that they uh, are near deterministic. And when you do that, you get a very, very nice model that does a great job of predicting people's uh, 
measurements of, you know, of whether causal relationships exist or not. And something which you can then translate over to AI and machine learning where if you want to build an AI system which induces causal relationships in a way that's going to make sense to people, you probably won't want to have it make similar kinds of assumptions because the things that it finds otherwise aren't going to be the kinds of things that people think about as causal relationships. Hmm. So is the, is the takeaway there that human cognition, like the inferences that our brains automatically make about causal relationships, that those do basically follow the process of, of Bayesian inference, I guess, or, or uh, you know, com- we're comparing the distribution of data we would expect given, you know, a causal relationship to the actual distribution of data that we've seen, that, that we are, our brains are following that process, but subject to certain assumptions about the world that an AI might not necessarily have? Yeah, so there are two parts of that. So one is, um, we, we get a pretty good model of people's inferences by assuming that they're doing something like Bayesian inference over, um, over these causal graphical models. Um, uh, but with some important deviations, which I'll mention in a moment. And then the other is, yeah, that in order to make that work, we have to make these additional assumptions, which, which aren't present in, and, and weren't present in the sort of existing uh, mathematical methods that had been used for answering this question in AI. So we sort of get value added out of considering the human case. Uh, and you know, I think it's there's a there's a for something like causality. Causality is a, is a weird and interesting thing because nobody has actually ever observed a causal relationship, right? Causal relationships are things that they don't exist in the world, right? As as Hume pointed out, right? You've you've never really got good evidence for a causal relationship being something that actually exists. It's more a uh, an expectation which we're imposing on on the world around us, um, and so it's interesting. Interesting to ask the question of you know whether there's a notion of causality independent of the human construal of causality, uh, and I think a lot of you know sort of arguments that you can have about okay you know what's a what's a good way of characterizing causal relationship or not are, are really end up being kind of psychological arguments about the intuitions that we have about the nature of causes. Um, so to come back to those those important deviations, so so one thing that we observe is that people are not as sensitive as they should be to sample size. Uh, and this is consistent with a lot of other psychological research. So the place where our Bayesian models uh, definitely deviate from people's judgments is that uh, as you increase the sample size, the, the model is going to say, okay, now you know, you're increasing the amount of evidence, uh, and it's going to say so at a, a, a much faster rate than people do. So people kind of act like um, uh, sample sizes are, are increasing. The evidence is increasing at a much lower rate than it should as you increase sample size. Uh, there are th- ways of thinking about that. Um, uh, you know, one is that when we make these models, we make very strong independence assumptions that observations are independent of one another, and that means that you're going to get sort of you know strongly accumulating evidence. Uh, uh, whereas if you think that you know you're not getting data that's as good as that, and some of those observations are dependent in some way, then the rate at which you're going to adjust your beliefs should should be slower. But this is a general observation, uh, and it's certainly something which we see in our data. So uh, one topic that comes up a lot in the sort of skeptic, pro-critical thinking, pro-science uh, circles is, as you alluded earlier, the, the fact that humans have been trying to in- make these inferences about causality, especially in, say, medicine, what, what kinds of cures will you know, fix what kinds of diseases for a long time. And a lot of the sort of traditional uh, like folk wisdom, uh, folk cures that have been around for hundreds or thousands of years don't actually work. And one of the main insights that the skeptics have been trying to point at is that the reason that these 
if false beliefs have persisted for so long that you know the the stars determine our destinies, for example, is that the human brain is not um, very good at reasoning about causality, um, and and in sort of more and deeper ways than just being insensitive to sample size, right? That that you know, for example, we can quickly form a hypothesis, maybe based on only a, a few data points, where someone was born on a certain day and, and turned out to have a certain personality, but then we're very selective in what pieces of supporting evidence we notice um, or dismiss, and so you know we we will. Notice the times that eating birch bark um, was followed by someone recovering from their sickness, but we won't notice or remember the times when that relationship didn't hold because that isn't consistent with our theory, et cetera, et cetera. And so the theory just becomes more and more entrenched over time, even though there was never, you know, there was little or no evidence to support it in the first place. Um, and so, yeah, I guess the, the thing that you're describing where the brain uses these like basically optimal rules of statistical inference, um, you know, with some caveats, seems like it doesn't really, it doesn't fully explain just how how often and how deeply wrong humans have been about causality over the years. Yeah, so I think that's an interesting point. Um, and there's, uh, I think there, there are a, a couple of things to say about it. So one is, it's certainly true. So, so the kinds of things that you're describing are cases where what we're doing is kind of failing to recognize that a relationship doesn't exist, right? Um, uh, and Statistically, that's a much harder problem than recognizing that a relationship does exist, right? So if you think about the structure of that problem, um, you can never get strong evidence that a relationship doesn't exist because uh, the, the, the way that I normally think about it, um, so, so let's contrast the case of getting evidence that a relationship does exist, right? You can, you can see something which sort of deviate so much from your expectations about what chance would look like that you can get sort of arbitrarily strong amounts of evidence that a relationship does exist, right? Um, getting evidence that a relationship doesn't exist requires, basically the, the problem is that any evidence that you got that it doesn't exist, that something didn't happen, could still possibly have happened under the hypothesis that it did exist. <laughs> because there was some confounding factor? Yeah, some yeah. confounding thing or just, you know, that um, that sort of the, the set of events which are the events where nothing happens are still contained within the set of events where, you know, something happens, if that makes sense, right? So, like, even if you, um, uh, so, that, so I have a paper about this where, where this is with um, Joseph Williams, who's a student here at Berkeley, and what we looked at was people's randomness judgments. So people have a bad, a bad reputation for making judgments about randomness, um, you know, basically that we, uh, the, the sort of argument is we're sort of, we're just bad at reasoning about, you know, what looks like chance. Um, and in our paper, what we did was sort of make this observation that part of, uh, what makes sort of deciding that something is random difficult is that, uh, you know, the events that provide evidence to randomness can still happen even if you're, you're, you're talking about a more structured process. So if you're flipping a coin and that coin has a bias of, you know, uh, 0.9 in favor of heads, you can still get a sequence which is heads, heads, tails, heads, tails, right? Uh, that's not a, a particularly, necessarily a particularly unlikely sequence. But if you're uh, flipping a coin, uh, so, so, so as a consequence, you know, that event can still occur uh, under the hypothesis of sort of non-random stuff. Uh, and so it's, it becomes hard for you to sort of get strong evidence in favor of, uh, in favor of randomness, whereas you can get strong evidence in favor of non-randomness because, you know, you can get like, you know, long strings of heads or whatever it is that are those kinds of clues. So, 
So the first point is just that I think there's an asymmetry. To, to, to go back to yeah. the causal inference context, the, I guess it's not clear to me that the asymmetry exists um, because, I'm, for, for example, I'm thinking of all of these many, many um, social science papers that, that purport to show a causal relationship between, say, I don't know, uh, class size and educational outcomes, that kind of thing. And, you know, no matter how much they try to control, uh, no matter how many confounding factors they try to control for, there's still this very, like, strong possibility that it's hard to get rid of, um, this, this strong suspicion that there might be some other factor that they haven't, um, that they haven't taken into account or controlled for that's, um, that's in play that means the relationship isn't causal. Like, maybe the, uh, you know, richer neighborhoods have both higher class sizes and also better educational outcomes. And that's why you see the correlation between the class size and the educational outcomes. But that doesn't mean that if you increase class or decrease class size that you'll improve educational outcomes. Um, and so it seems to me that in practice, there, um, it, it's actually quite hard to be confident in a causal relationship um, just based on correlations. Although maybe you're talking about not just observational data, or are you talking about intervening like with an RCT? Uh, so we've, we've, we've looked at, uh, in most of our experiments, we use interventions just to isolate individual causes that people are then reasoning about. Um, I agree that there's a much more complex problem when you're trying to think about multiple possible causes. And uh, that's actually not a case that we've looked at in detail in terms of our work. Um, but just, I mean, I guess the way that, uh, and, I, and I agree in those cases, you know, uh, so, so basically the thing that I would expect is that people should be good at detecting that there's something going on. Although just like statisticians, they're going to find it difficult to figure out, you know, what thing is actually going on. Right? I see. Okay. Um, uh, and uh, but I guess the point that I was making about you know it, it being kind of harder to recognize that there's not a relationship um, is it comes down to what a statistician would talk about as being uh, nested hypotheses, right? Like the hypothesis that there's no relationship at all is sort of nested within the hypothesis that there's some kind of relationship because it's a special case. So you know a coin that produces heads 50% of the time is a special case of the set of biased coins. It's just the special case of you know being the one that's actually fair. Right, so that's something which can make it hard to recognize that you've 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 you're actually seeing data which is coming from a fair coin, uh, because you can never get sort of strongly diagnostic evidence for it. And if you think that people's minds are things that glom onto what seems like diagnostic evidence, then you'd you'd predict as a consequence of that that uh, you know that you're going to end up seeing you know people producing false alarms, right? Seeing relationships where there are no such relationships. Um, and so what we actually showed in our paper was that um, when you, when you equate the difficulty, the sort of statistical difficulty of that randomness judgment task with other kinds of decision problems that don't have those nested hypotheses, uh, people do just as poorly on those other decision problems as they were doing on the randomness task. So it's kind of, you know, there's something just kind of inherently statistically difficult about that kind of inference where you're recognizing that there's no underlying relationship between things. Is the upshot then that um, the brain is is basically doing doing good statistical inference under the constraint of having limited time and, and resources? Like it's doing the best it can, essentially. So it's not not systematically biased, just um, just pressed for time, I guess. That's right. So that's so that's where um, my current research is really one of one of the, the the big directions that we're focused on. In our current research is trying to really find a satisfactory way for for, for formalizing that notion. Um, so the way that I express this in terms of those levels of analysis we were talking about earlier is um, when we were operating at that computational level, we have this useful principle of optimality, right? This sort of 
this idea that people are doing a pretty good job of solving these problems. And then, you know, that narrows down the space of hypotheses that we have to explore to those ones that constitute good solutions to the structure of those problems. So when you push down to the algorithmic level and you start to say, okay, fine, we've got those sort of ideal solutions, but we know that people don't always act in ways which are consistent with those. The way that I think about it is kind of those models are really useful because um, they, they give us a, a sort of a starting point for, for investigating some of these questions. And, you know, we sort of hope that they capture some of the variation in the data, but they also give us a guide to what are the things that are actually deviations that we should be investigating, right? So, you know, the value of rational models is partly that they highlight the things that people are doing that might be different from those rational models. Uh, and then that gives us uh, a place to look in terms of trying to understand what the actual mechanisms that are, are involved that are, that are sort of implementing those solutions or whatever it is that the actual cognitive processes are that people are using. This is very similar, by the way, to the way that Kahneman and Tversky originally laid out the heuristics and biases research program. They said, you know, probabilistic inference is something which is hard. Uh, so, you know, we assume people are going to be doing, doing this via heuristics, uh, and then the biases are the clues as to what those heuristics are. Uh, and I think... Right, where a heuristic, uh, just in case it isn't clear to all listeners, a heuristic is sort of a... a, a fast, efficient, um, uh, uh, like, guideline for making a decision um, that, that gets you pretty good results in many cases, but isn't necessarily perfect. Yeah, that's right. And then I think what's happened is that people have tended to focus more on the biases, right, as kind of failures of rationality rather than as clues to, to underlying sort of cognitive processes. So that's what we've started to do recently is say, let's take that principle of optimality that we're using at the computational level and take it down a level to the level of algorithms and ask the question, what makes a good algorithm? Like, what makes a good heuristic? Uh, so, you know, heuristics, just as you know, due to that, are sort of normally defined pretty much heuristically, right? They're defined as pretty good solutions. Um, but we can be more precise than that. We can say a good heuristic is one that, that really hits a sweet spot in terms of a trade-off between how much time or computational effort that you're putting into solving a problem and how much error you're making, how much you're sort of deviating from the ideal solutions. Uh, and we can sort of formalize that precisely and then that gives us a guide for be beginning to explore some of the cognitive processes that people might engage in and we can ask a question of whether a bias that we see in people's behavior is actually something which we can understand as the consequence of operating under limited you know, resources. The other thing that I normally say about these kind of false alarms of causal learning is uh, that I think our evaluation of people as being bad at learning causal relationships partly comes from thinking about modern adult humans. And in most of my research, I'm kind of thinking about pre-modern, pre-adult humans. So uh, as a modern adult human, you actually don't have a whole lot of causal relationships to learn, right? Uh, most of the things that you need to know in order to operate in the world around you, you've pretty much got pinned down. And so as a consequence, those abilities that we have to figure out causal relationships end up sort of firing falsely on all of these kinds of things like pseudoscience and so on. But if you think about what's going on with, say, a kid who comes into the world not knowing anything about the causal structure of the environment that they're placed in, and then, you know, within four or five years is basically bootstrapped all of these kinds of causal relationships which are fundamental to understanding how the world works, the, the, the sort of the trade-off between getting the, these false alarms and actually being able to figure out that structure is, 
it sort of it leans in the direction of yeah you really need to figure the stuff out as fast as possible and don't worry if you sort of mess up a couple of those kinds of relationships uh, and so I think uh, that kind of characterization you know the way that um, I, I think about a lot of human cognition is that you know uh, it's really the learning capacities that we have are really designed for those first few years of our lives and then end up being somewhat useful subsequently but um, uh, but but really, the, the the a lot of the magic happens in that that initial period. Um, and you know, I think equivalently, if you think about people uh, living in a world where science has done less of the work of figuring out what the nature of the causal relationships are, uh, again, there'd be a greater dependence on quickly figuring out those relationships that you need to know in order to survive, and then trading, changing the direction of that trade-off. Right, right. So this so this again comes back to the theme of of our, our brains built in algorithms being pretty darn optimized for the most important things in our ancestral environment. And to the extent that the modern environment uh, diverges from the ancestral environment in important ways, and to the extent that the stakes have gone up, for example, um, due to modern technology and interconnected world, it might make sense to try to patch those algorithms. But that doesn't imply that the algorithms were poorly poorly optimized in the first place. Yeah, but I think it's also important to think about, I think we're, we're self-centered in terms of thinking about you know what we do as adults. As being the most important parts of our lives. So, and thinking about the structure of the problem that we have to solve, recognizing that a big part of that problem is in childhood is also, I think, a, a really useful way of, of characterizing, you know, exactly what computational capacity is that we need. So, uh, there's this, this sort of ongoing debate in the heuristics and biases field and related fields between, I'm going to simplify here, but between on the one hand, the, the traditional Kahneman and Tversky model of, uh, you know, biases are the ways that, that human uh, reasoning deviates from from ideal reasoning, um, systematic mistakes that we make. And then on the other side of the debate are people like, for example, uh, Gigerenzer, who argue, no, 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 the, the, the human brain isn't really biased. We're not really irrational. Um, these are actually optimal solutions uh, to uh, to the problems that the brain evolved to face and, and to problems that we have limited time and processing power to deal with. So it's not really appropriate to call the brain irrational. Um, it's just optimized for for like particular problems and, and under particular constraints. And I guess it's not, it's, it's not clear to me where your, um, it sounds like your, your uh, research is, is pointing towards the second of those positions, but it, I guess it's not clear to me what the tension actually is with, with Kahneman and Tversky um, in yeah. what you've said so far. So, so importantly, I think we're using pieces of both of those ideas. Um, and I don't, I don't think there's necessarily a significant tension with the Kahneman and Tversky perspective. Um, uh, so here's, here's one way of characterizing this. So Gerens' argument has focused on one particular idea which comes from statistics, which is called the bias-variance trade-off. And the basic idea of this, this principle is that um, you don't necessarily want to use the most complex model when you're trying to solve a problem. You don't necessarily want to use the most complex algorithm. So if you're trying to you know, predict, uh, build a predictive model, including more predictors into the model can be something which makes the model actually worse, provided you're or doing something like trying to minimize the errors that you're making in uh, accounting for the data that you've seen so far. And the problem is that as your model gets more complicated, it can overfit the data. So it can, it can end up producing sort of predictions which are driven by noise that appears in the data that you've seen because it's got such a greater sort of expressive capacity. And so the idea is by having a simpler model, you're not going to get into that problem of ending up doing a good job of modeling the noise, and as a consequence, you're going to end up making better predictions and, and potentially doing a better job of solving those problems. So Gigerenz's argument is that 
some of these heuristics, which you can think about as you know strategies that uh, end up being perhaps simpler than than other kinds of cognitive strategies you can engage in, uh, they're going to work better than a more complex strategy, precisely because of the bias variance trade-off. Precisely because they take us in that direction of minimizing the um, the amount that we're going to be overfitting the data. Um, so the reason why it's called the bias variance trade-off is that. As you go in that direction, you add bias to your model. You're going to be able to do a less good job of sort of fitting data sets in general, but uh, you're reducing variance. You're reducing the amount which the answers you're going to get are going to vary around depending on the particular data that you see. And those two things are things that are both bad for making predictions. And so the idea is you want to sort of find the point which is the right trade-off between those two kinds of errors. Right. So sort of to, to visualize this trade-off, you could imagine, and correct me if you think this is the wrong metaphor, but you could imagine, um, uh, you know, shooting darts at a dartboard. Um, and if you're if you're an unbiased um, dart darts player, um, but have a lot of variance, then you're, you're going to be basically aiming at the center. But, but, you know, some of your darts will be be wildly off to the left, some will be wildly off to the right, but on average, you're aiming at the center. Still, there's tons of error there. Or you could be a biased dart player, but with little variance. And so all of your darts basically hit the same spot, you know, one inch away from the center or something. So you're not aiming directly at the center, but still there's less error overall in how yep, far your darts are right. away from the target. So, um, okay, great. So what's, so, what, so what's interesting about that is that um, you basically get this one kind of explanatory dimension where it says, you know, there's, there's going to be, making things simpler is going to be good, but it doesn't necessarily explain why you get all the way to the very, very simple kinds of strategies that Picarenza tries, tends to advocate. Because basically what the bias trade trade-off tells you is that you don't want to use the most complex thing, but you probably also don't want to use the simplest thing. You actually want to use something which is somewhere in between, uh, and that might end up being more complex than perhaps the simplest sorts of strategies that, you know, uh, that Picarenza has identified that say rely on just using a single predictor when you're trying to make a decision. Um, Kahneman and Tversky, on the other hand, uh, emphasized heuristics as basically a means of dealing with cognitive effort, right? Or the way that I, I sort of think about it is computational effort. Doing probabilistic reasoning is something which, as a computational problem, is really hard. Um, uh, you know, it's you know, Bayesian inferences, sharp p hard, right? So it's, it falls into the, the categories of, of problems which are things that you know, we don't have efficient algorithms to get computers to do. So it's no surprise that they'd be things that would be challenging for people as well. And so the idea is maybe people can follow some simpler strategies that are reducing sort of the cognitive effort that they need to use to solve problems. Uh, and Giga Renza kind of argued against that. He sort of argued against people being, you know, I think the way he characterized it as sort of being lazy and saying instead, no, we're doing a good job of solving these problems. Um, and I think the position that I have is that I think both of those perspectives are important and they're going to be important for explaining different aspects of the heuristics that we end up using. So if you add in this third factor of cognitive effort, that's something which uh, does maybe push you a little bit further in terms of going in the direction of simplicity. Uh, but it's also something that we can use to explain you know, uh, other kinds of of heuristics. So, for example, um, my, one of my students here at, uh, at Berkeley, Falk Leader, has been doing a lot of work investigating whether some of the classic heuristics identified by Kahneman and Tversky can be understood as being, you know, really good sort of points on this, uh, this trade-off between the effort that we have to make and the error that we make as a consequence of it. Uh, looking at um, things like uh, the availability heuristic or uh, anchoring and adjustment, which are 
are sort of canonical things that have been used to argue against aspects of human rationality and saying, well, maybe we can understand the sort of decisions that are made in the context of those particular algorithms by viewing them as algorithms and then asking whether those algorithms are, you know, how we should best use those algorithms to solve the problems that we have to solve as humans. Can, can you briefly explain the availability and anchoring heuristics? Yeah, so I'll, I'll, maybe I'll just do one of them. Just <laughs> so, Great, how about availability? Uh, yeah, I'll do availability and then I, I'll tell you our sort of story about it. So the basic idea behind availability is that um, if I ask you to judge the probability of something or make a decision which depends on probabilities of outcomes, uh, then you do that by basically using those outcomes which come to mind most easily. Um, and so an example of this is, say, you know, if you're going to uh, make a decision as to whether you should go you know, snorkeling on holiday, you might end up thinking not just about the you know, colorful fish you're going to see, but also about you know, the possibility of shark attacks, right? Or if you're going to go uh, on a plane flight, you probably end up thinking about terrorists more than you should. So these are things which are sort of very salient to us and jump out at us. And so as a consequence, we end up overestimating the probabilities when we're trying to make decisions. So uh, what Falk did was look at this question from the perspective of you know, trying to think about a, a sort of computational solution to the problem of calculating an expected utility. So if you're acting rationally, what you should be doing when you're trying to make a decision as to whether you want to do something or not is to you know, work out what's the probabilities of all of the different outcomes that could happen, uh, what's the utility that you assign to those outcomes, and then average together those utilities weighted by their probabilities. And then that gives you the sort of value of making that, you know, the, the value of that particular option. Um, but that's obviously a really computationally demanding thing, particularly for the kinds of problems that we face as human beings, where there could be many possible outcomes and so on and so on. So a reasonable way that you could try and solve that problem instead is by sampling, by generating you know, some sample of outcomes and then evaluating the utilities of those outcomes and then adding those up. Um, and then you have this sort of question, which is, well, what, should, what distribution should you be sampling those outcomes from? And I think the immediate intuitive response is to say, well, you should just generate those outcomes with the probability that they occur in the world, right? You should just generate an unbiased sample. Uh, and indeed, if you do that, you'll get an unbiased estimate of the expected utility. But the problem with that is that if you're in a situation where there are some outcomes that are sort of extreme outcomes that, say, occur with relatively low probability, which is, you know, I think the sort of context that we often face in the sorts of decisions that we make as humans, uh, then that strategy is going to not work very well because there's a chance that you don't generate those extreme outcomes because you're starting from this distribution and those things might have a relatively low chance of happening. So, for example, you know, if somebody asked you whether you wanted to play Russian roulette or not, uh, I think you'd have to generate about 50 samples of the possible outcomes of that game uh, to have a 99.9% you know, .9 chance of deciding that you definitely don't want to play, play that game. <laughs> um, uh, and that's just because there's an outcome which is really bad, which is like you know shooting yourself in the head, which occurs with relatively low probability in this case, one sixth. Uh, and um, in general, uh, there's uh, you know the, the 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 events that we have to deal with might be equivalently bad, but occur with even lower probabilities. So the answer is you you in order to deal with that problem, you probably want to generate from a different distribution. And we can ask what's the best distribution to generate from from the perspective of minimizing uh, the variance in the estimates. Because in this case, it's the variance that literally kills you. It's the variability across those different samples. Uh, and the answer is, add a little bit of bias, right? It's the bias-variance trade-off again. 
Um, and so you generate from a biased distribution that results in a biased estimate. And the optimal distribution to generate from, from the perspective of minimizing variance, is the distribution where you, the probability of generating an outcome is proportional to the probability of that outcome occurring in the world multiplied by the absolute value of its utility. Uh, so basically the idea is that you want to generate from a distribution where those extreme events that are either extremely good or extremely bad are given greater weight. And that's exactly what we end up doing when, we, when we're sort of answering questions using those available examples because the things that we tend to focus on and the things we tend to store in memory are those things which really have extreme utilities. I see. Interesting. So the thing I'm most interested in now is what this means for prescriptive rationality. Like, even... Even granting that argument that that the availability heuristic was a roughly optimal solution to these kinds of problems, you know, under under the constraints of you know, time and computational uh, effort, it's still not clear to me that we couldn't improve on those um, strategies that are built into our brains. So, you know, if the availability heuristic gives us biased sort of inside view, intuitive impressions of a risk, say from shark attacks, then couldn't it still be prescriptively a better solution to take that intuition and compare it to the statistics that exist on chance of death from shark attacks if you go snorkeling, you know, 10 times a year and have the have a new uh, heuristic that you add to your brain of trusting the explicit statistics in cases where you know that your brain is using the availability heuristic or is going to tend to use the, avail the availability heuristic, that kind of thing. Yeah, so I think there are two things that come out of this. So one is that having this perspective for thinking about the algorithms uh, inside our heads means that we should be doing perhaps good algorithm design for humans, right? So we normally think about algorithm design as something that we, we do for uh, computers where we're trying to come up with better strategies for computers to solve our problems. But if we think about the algorithms that we use being those things that are the sweet spot between you know, error and computational effort, it's not going to be successful to teach us you know, really complicated strategies that require a lot of computational effort because the reason why we end up using the heuristics that we have is because you know, they, they end up you know, being a pretty good trade-off in that way. And we've actually, we we're also doing some work at the moment about looking at uh, how people engage in what's called rational meta-reasoning, which is basically deciding what strategies they're going to use in solving a problem and how they could actually acquire sort of pretty good strategies for solving these different kinds of problems. So, so I think one approach is to say, let's, let's try and come up with good algorithms that people can use, but in thinking about those good algorithms, have this dimension of cognitive effort and computational ease and trying to understand what the, the nature of the human computational architecture is like so that we can end up sort of making recommendations of algorithms that end up being good algorithms with respect to both of those criteria. Um, uh, I actually I have a, a, a book coming out in April with Brian Christian uh, where we look at those kinds of notions. It's called uh, Algorithms to Live By. So it's explicitly exploring that kind of question of what good algorithms for human lives might look like. Um, but I think the other idea is that, you know, to the extent that we've already adopted these algorithms and these end up being sort of strategies that we end up using, you can also ask the question of how we might structure our environments in ways that we end up doing a better job of solving the problems we want to solve uh, because we've changed the nature of the, the sort of the, the inputs to those algorithms, right? So if, you, if intervening on the algorithms themselves is difficult, 
intervening on our environments might be easier. It might be the kind of thing that, that makes us able to do a better job of, uh, of, of making these sorts of inferences. So to return to your example of shark attacks and so on, I think uh, you could expect that there's even more bias than the optimal amount of bias in uh, availability-based decisions because what's available to us has changed, right? So one of the things that's happened is, you know, you can hear about shark attacks on the news and you can see, you know, plane crashes and you can see all of these different kinds of things. So the statistics of the environment that we operate in are also just completely messed up with respect to what's relevant for making our, our own decisions. Uh, and so a basic recommendation that would come out of that is, you know, if this is the way that your mind tends to work, try and put yourself in an environment where you get exposed to the right kind of statistics. And I think, you know, the way you were sort of characterizing that was in terms of, you know, you sort of find out what the facts are on shark attacks and so on. Um, I, I agree. Think, that's, not, that's not what our brains are optimized to respond to, though, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. So uh, I can give you an example of doing this, though, which is... Um, uh, so, so one thing that I did for a while is Wikipedia has like a random, uh, random page you can you can go to this link and you just it loads a random Wikipedia page, and so I set my homepage on my browser to you know just generate a random Wikipedia page, uh, and so what I get then every time I open the browser is just a random sample from Wikipedia. Uh, so this is sort of interesting from the perspective of first of all I learned a lot about the kinds of things that's on Wikipedia. Uh, there's a lot of uh, small towns that have web pages and things like sports people are very uh, strongly represented. Um, but the other thing that I got out of it was, you know, we were talking earlier about randomness and causal relationships. I got a better sense of what randomness really looks like uh, for semantically interesting phenomena, right? So um, one thing that came out of that was that I could, you know, it, I was surprised at how often the randomly generated pages felt like they were something that had a personal connection to me. So for example, you know, I did, I did, having observed this phenomenon for a while, I then actually did a trial where I just generated pages and saw how many pages I have to generate until I got something that was related. And, you know, it only took generating a few random Wikipedia pages to hit the page on the Western Australian legislature. And I grew up in Western Australia and I was like, okay, you know. So I think it was really useful in terms of calibrating that kind of sense of coincidence. Um, and I think there's an interesting idea there, which is, yeah, like, you know, for, Thinking about things like you know plane crashes and car crashes, I think you know if you if you can manage to filter out all of the stuff which you haven't seen in person, you can end up having a much better sense of those statistics. But more generally, it's it's interesting to think about what kinds of experiential methods we can come up with for actually getting ourselves exposed to say good statistics, so that the algorithms that are inside our heads end up getting better inputs for solving the sorts of problems we want to solve. Excellent. Yeah, a, a very good point, which unfortunately we don't have time to expand upon because we're all out of time for this section of the podcast. But we should, we should consider uh, uh, revisiting this conversation after your book comes out later this year. That sounds great. All right. Well, uh, we're going to wrap up this part of the conversation and move on now to the Rationally Speaking Pick. Welcome back. Every episode, we invite our guest on Rationally Speaking to introduce the Rationally Speaking pick of the episode. That's a book or website or movie or something that's influenced their thinking in some interesting way. So, Tom, what's your pick for today's episode? I can tell you about the book which got me into computational cognitive science, mm -hmm. uh, and that's a book called Matter and Consciousness by Paul Churchland. 
So it's a book which is basically an introduction to philosophy of mind. It talks about things like, uh, you know, questions about how you can actually study things like minds and uh, how you would characterize thoughts and so on. Um, but I read it when I was an undergraduate in Australia. Uh, I took a class in philosophy of mind. And over the summer, I just went back and looked at it because there was a chapter that we'd never read in the book. And this chapter was about basically the implications of neural network models for thinking about these sorts of fundamental questions about how the mind works. Um, and to me, that was incredibly exciting. Like, it has a whole appendix where it kind of goes through, you know, how neural, these, these artificial neural network models work. And uh, I was a high school student who, uh, as a high school student, I'd done a lot of math and so on. And then when I went to university, I was really just interested in learning about things like philosophy and psychology I'd never had the chance to study before. But this was the moment where I saw that it was possible for those things to come together, that it was possible to think about studying minds from a mathematical perspective. And so I just spent that summer you know, doing calculus and linear algebra and reading books about neural networks and deriving models and coming up with you know, a grand unified theory of how the mind works that uh, you know, it was just, I think, a very exciting experience for me. And then I, on the first day of the the next semester, I like found the person on campus who who did research that was most closely related to that. And at nine a.m. on the first day of class, like cornered him in a corridor and uh, added him about letting me be a research assistant. And then that's what that's what set me off on this path of uh, thinking about you know the sort of mathematical structure as a mind. Excellent. Well, it's too bad that that my former co-host Massimo isn't here because he's always frustrated that scientists don't. Uh, don't have enough respect for the relevance of philosophy to their work. And here you are, a scientist who, uh, who embarked on, on his path because uh, of reading a book of philosophy of mind. So <laughs> I'll have to make sure Massimo hears about this episode. Well, thank you so much for your time, Tom. It's been a fascinating conversation, and I hope to have you back on the show soon. Thank you. It's been great. And before we close, I just want to remind all of our listeners to get your tickets for Nexus. That's the Northeast Conference on Science and Skepticism, taking place this May 12th through 15th in New York City. Keynote speaker this year is the always excellent Richard Wiseman. Other featured speakers include Bill Nye, the science guy, and the entire cast of The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. And of course, I'll be there taping a live show. Get your tickets now at nexus.org. That's N-E-C-S-S Hope to see you there. And now, this concludes another episode of Rationally Speaking. Join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense. The Rationally Speaking podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollack and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening. <laughs>